Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Bank UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Bank UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, with the Relax Bank UK show this week. Two topics that really are very different. We start off with the reason that many women and girls are not engaging in physical exercise. Over 90% of them are not wearing the right size bra. So lots of them are wearing bras, they are wearing sports bras, but not necessarily the right size and shape for them. And that means that they're not going to be as comfortable and as confident and as kind of, you know, enjoying those activities as they could be. Sarah Taylor of Think Active and Leanne Cahill of Bravissimo are out to change that. Then a completely different topic, but something that affects many more people than it needs to. Continues to evoke historical images of pathogenic horrors of grossly disabled, disfigured people who are ostracized from society. And what I find astounding is that unfortunately, People who still suffer leprosy today do suffer disfigurement and deformity, but unfortunately they are often ostracized, totally cut off from their families and communities and isolated in remote leprosy colonies. Leprosy is completely treatable now, but Dr Maggie Birchess tells us of how old thoughts still persist. So please do stick around for a great show. Thank you. The guests in the first section are Leanne Cahill of Bravissimo and Sarah Taylor from the charity Think Active. The topic is sports bras and there is a link between sports bras and women and girls not getting involved in sport. So I asked, uh, my first question was, well, what is that? Yeah, I'm going to give you a bit of a stat to, to kick us off in that 87% of teenagers have reported something to do with their breasts as being uh, a barrier to being physically active. And when I say something to do with their breasts, I'm talking about breast pain. I'm talking about uh, breast movement, um, discomfort, a poorly fitted bra, or uh, the embarrassment that's that's attached to that. And at Think Active, we are absolutely about championing the importance of physical activity for our physical and our mental well-being and we are passionate about trying to embed physical activity behaviors as young as possible and so if we are hearing that breasts and body image fear of judgment embarrassment are barriers there is absolutely something that can be done about that and sports bras are top of the list But put that in context, just how many um, girls are not sort of getting enough exercise? Well, we know that nationally, women and girls are less active than our than our male counterparts. And, you know, the guidelines are that over the course of a week, it's uh, 150 minutes of physical activity. and, And unfortunately, we know that not enough women are hitting those those guidelines for health. Have we got any idea how many? So is it like 80% of them aren't or 90% or, you know? Yeah, so, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, in, in terms of the latest data that we get from, from Sport England, 
we know that 43% of men compared to 39% of, of, of women are getting the 150 minutes that they that, that, that they need. So, so women are less active than their male counterparts. And it's because women and girls experience sport and physical activity very differently, diff, very yeah. differently to men. Okay. So just from that statistic alone, the lack of exercise is a major deal and is storing up all kinds of problems and issues for people in later life. You know, this, this is a serious problem. Yeah, exactly. We want our population to live longer, better. We want our whole population for women and girls from puberty through to menopause and beyond. We want them enjoying those benefits. We want a healthy um, population that ages well, that is functionally uh, independent, that is robust, that, that we are reducing chronic disease and enjoying all the benefits that physical activity yeah. brings. Okay. So from the stats you gave, you said like it was like 30 something percent are getting enough exercise. So by definition, the rest aren't. So um, the, the fact that they often don't have proper sports bras or good fitting bras is, is, is um, one of the major contributors to this, we're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. It's specifically for girls aged 11 to 16. So those secondary school years, over half of them aren't getting that level of activity that they should do. And you can see within those ages, as they get towards 16 and beyond, the numbers get worse and worse. So you can actually see girls dropping out of being physically active, enjoying activity and enjoying regular sport. And this is clearly one of the biggest barriers that they, they caught uh, and one of the reasons that they're put off continuing. So I guess our family must, my family must be slightly different. I've got a daughter of 18 and I, she's got a sports bra and she uses it to go jogging and running all the rest of it. My wife's got one and she uses it, uses it for yoga. So kind of what's, I suppose, what's the problem? Why, you know, why not just go out and get a sports bra and do some sport? Then? So, I, I don't mean to sound flippant because I, I, I do realise it's a big problem. But we at Brevismo, we're kind of the leading retailers in bras, sports bras and cup size swimwear for women who are D cup and above. And we see the women that come and see us, over 90% of them are not wearing the right size bra. So lots of them are wearing bras, they are wearing sports bras, but not necessarily the right size and shape for them. And that means that they're not going to be as comfortable and as confident and as kind of and you know enjoying those activities as they could be so it okay. plays such an important role in your confidence and how you feel about yourself if these things are right okay so it might be more about getting something that actually works and actually fits um all right so i i know um people are doing a lot more stuff online and with covid there's been you know online visits to the doctor and all the rest of it I had a quick look at your uh, your website and there's online bra fitting. And, you know, I thought, really? I how can that possibly work? I can't see that working at all. Well, I'm glad you've brought it up, actually, because when people first hear about it, they're, they're daunted sometimes. And we absolutely don't want that to be the case. So Bravismo has got shops dotted around the country. But actually, if we go back to the beginning of the business, um, it was a mail order business and we've been fitting women over the phone for almost 30 years. 
And because we don't use tape measures um, and we, we, we can fit by describing how the fit works, what, what it should feel like, how you can test your own fit really simply, we can help people very easily over the phone um, and give them great advice around, you know, what size and what styles to choose. Um, and so you've been doing it for years? Sorry, this, this is nothing new for you. This, you've been doing this for years. Absolutely not new. Um, yeah, so we've been doing it for almost 30 years. During the pandemic, we um, some of our customers were really missing us and missing the fact that we weren't there in shops. Um, so we introduced video fittings. And it's, it works very much the same as if you were in a store. Um, so you're in your own home. Um, you're talking to a fitter face to face. There's only the two of you in that interaction. And it's private. And it's, yeah, it's fantastic. We get brilliant feedback from women after they've had the fittings. I think a lot of people do worry a little bit about how they go. Um, but we've got we've got such a lot of experience at making it really positive and comfortable quite enjoyable all right good um now there are lots of different sports do women need to choose like a different sort of bra for different sports you know if they're a long distance runner or a sprinter or a rugby player all this different stuff yes yeah there are certainly different designs the technical features of sports bras do slightly differ so and and the beauty of that is that there is choice out there for everybody so there is a bra to fit every woman and every type of activity that she wants to um, that she wants to take part in and I think that's quite crucial because again if we if we look at um, the, the benefits of a bra the the University of uh, the University of Portsmouth are quite a leading light in terms of um, breast and bra health research and some of the research that they've done have shown that um, the impact a bra can have on stride length, on posture, on energy expenditure, uh, and, and sort of the transfer of forces. Over the course of a marathon, a poorly fitted sports bra can make a, a mile of difference in you know, negatively. So, you know, there are... There I mean, li are literally a mile. If your, bra, yes. if your sports bra fits properly, you, you'll beat someone, you may well beat someone by a mile. Who, yes, who has potential. Because the, 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 the effect, the impact, the actual physiological um, benefits and how our body, how we hold ourselves, our stride length, our, our, how much energy we use, so on, can be negatively impacted by a poorly fitted sports bra. So, in terms of performance gains, if you're the type of, of person, participating for performance reasons then absolutely you know sports bra is imperative we look at you know the science that we the money that we invest in the latest trainers the latest streamlined kit um you know all those technological advances yeah sports bras are very much part of that and a big contributor to um to sports performance and not just you know us mere mere mortals who who are you are not quite competing at, at those levels. Sure. All right. So look, get into some details. If you say you're a sprinter, what do you need in a bra compared to, say, someone who's playing rugby? You know, what can, can you sort of describe the, yeah. the, the yeah. subtle differences? No, exactly. I mean, there are trying to get down to sort of the nitty gritty. The three main sort of types of bra are that you get one that is the sort of a, like a crop top type um type bra that compresses the breast 
And they generally tend to be more suited to women who have a smaller breast. So, because yeah. um, obviously... This I sounds know, a bit uncomfortable, okay? This, this is the bloke talking. This sounds a bit uncomfortable. No, no, there should be nothing uncomfortable about a sports bra, but okay. it gives you that level of security and compression that is going to reduce breast movement. Because we know that in some activities, star jumps, for example, the breast can move almost, up to almost 20 centimetres. Um, which, you know, in, yes, that can very much be uncomfortable. Um, then the other type of bra is an encapsulation bra where each breast is sort of cupped individually. And then you have the third type of bra is a combination of bra where both of those breasts are encapsulated, but then there's also the compression element. And each one of those bras will be better for a particular individual and better for her activity so if you've got a very dynamic powerful explosive where there's lots of movement in lots of direction within your sport and you have a larger breast then you might need a bra that is a combination of encapsulation and compression so it again it depends what directions of movement what's the intensity of the movement what's the size of the breast all those very individualized aspects that feed into the points that leanne is making about around this individualized approach to um buying a and, and getting a well-fitted bra that's right for you for your body and for the activity that you're doing the key thing okay. i think is coming to a specialist where there is that range because obviously some some retailers will specialize in different things um some retailers won't sell cup size sports bras at all and they're more kind of sized you know small medium large and and that's a bit more generalized not very specialist um and and that will be fine for some women um but if you're looking for the support and especially um as sarah said you know if you're if you're over a d cup and you the support's going to make an even bigger difference to you then getting in the right bra is really important. But, you know, you, you don't need to be, you can look at the website and say, my goodness, there's such a lot to choose from. You don't need to be an expert in that. It's just reaching out and, and getting the advice and we can help you navigate through. Sure. Okay. So Bravissimo makes and sells bras. What, what's, uh, how come Think Active are involved? What's, what's going on with uh, Think Active at the moment? Yeah, so Think Active, we're a charity. We're part of the Active um, Partnership Network. And our mission, what we aim to do is to support our local organisations and people and communities to embed physical activity in their lifestyle. We want people to benefit from, from being physically active. And for women and girls, we know that they experience sport physical activity differently to men. And we uh, are fully... Uh, we fully believe in trying to break down those barriers and confidence, empowerment, um, encouraging women from as early as possible are, are really key priorities for us. And those align hugely with the ambitions and the goals and the mission of, of Bravissimo. I think we, we are both on a, a sort of a, a campaign around empowerment, knowledge, awareness, confidence. We want women to thrive and we we feel very much aligned in in those objectives okay so how are you doing that are you actually going into schools kind of that that are starting to do sports uh, and you know and talk talking to girls at that age yeah we do a whole combination of things we work really closely with a brilliant network of of organizations that include schools that include sports clubs 
um, charities and we look to support them uh, working in partnership to create the um, the environments, the education opportunities that, that support physical activity. So yes, we'll absolutely deliver uh, workshops and webinars on physical activity during the menopause, for example. We will um, we have funding pots. We put out education um, pieces on our on our website and our and our social media channels. So we really try to get into the heart of of our community. And Bravissimo is is based on our doorstep in, in, in Leamington and Bra HQ, many sort of conversations and visits and how we can almost combine our forces. Is it, is it called Bra HQ? Is, yes, the head Bra office HQ. is Bra HQ, is it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we, we, did a, we had a brilliant lunch and learn session with the Bravismo team the other day all around what is physical activity for women what does that look like how can we embed it into our into our lifestyles and i think the more people that we get rippling out that information the bigger impact we can have we are definitely stronger together which is what we love about our, our partnership with bravissimo good all right well, look good luck with that i've got to ask you another question have you seen the seinfeld episode where kramer invents a bra for men and calls it the bro I need to look that up. Yes. Yeah. Seen that. Well, uh, so he, he's he's convinced that there's a market of bras for men. He calls it the bro, or the or the, his other name for it was the man's ear. You're not you're not thinking of going down that path. It's not it's not on our immediate kind of <laughs> next to do list right now. <laughs> I, I've got to say I'm I'm glad to hear it. And the other thing that I'm kind of hoping that you're not going to branch out into is a. Uh, PPE for, for medical types and hospitals, because I think one other bra company did that and it didn't go down very well. It wasn't terribly successful. I think we're, we're the opposite to that. It's, it's interesting, actually, because we, we do get women coming to us at various different stages of life and for very different reasons. And, you know, for example, health journeys, menopause different times of life when people are looking and sometimes when you go out looking for what you need it looks like medical equipment it I'm looks ready. like you know it's overly functional and that's where you know partly what things look and feel like is is a really kind of key ingredient in helping people feel great about themselves so yeah it, it sounds like we're, we're the opposite to that direction but interestingly i think um, you know, Leanne's been telling me about a lot of people that they work with are also uh, looking for a bra for, for their profession. So a lot of people who are in active professions in, in the services, um, post office uh, workers, police officers, and, um, police yeah. officers uh, are, you know, a well fitted sports bra is a real crucial part of their kit as well, for the, you know, to right. help them do their jobs. And actually, another group of people that actually I speak to on on this program, I talk to a lot of people that have uh, have cancer of one sort or another, um, breast cancer. So people that have had operations, and and you know they need a, a, a special type of bra because you know they might have one breast missing or a part missing, and you mm -hmm. know they, they they need to be helped as well. Absolutely, we we actually uh, quite recently developed our own um, post-surgery bra um, to help those customers. We, we had feedback from our customers saying, you know, I'm going through a really tough time. I go through all of this difficult treatment and, and operations, surgery, 
And, and actually I'm finding that finding a bra after that whole experience is almost as difficult as the experience itself. It, it's been really soul destroying. Um, everything looks like something my granny might wear, not, not what I want to see myself in. So we took all that feedback and, um, and a group of customers um, and, and team members as well who've been through that experience and really took their input in, in a huge amount of detail to, to develop our own post-surgery bra. And it's been amazing to see the impact that that had. Um, they chose a bright red colour, really pretty. And it, yeah, to get the feedback that, you know, that has really helped them feel feminine and confident and like themselves again. It's such rewarding work. Yeah, no, important, absolutely. All right. So look, I, I, this this is as we've discussed, as we've outlined with some of the statistics, very important. If people are listening to this and they want some more information, they want some advice. Where what is a good resource for them? Okay, for, from a Think Active point of view, um, people can go onto our website, um, thinkactive.org, and take a look at a whole host of information. That is a we as well as um, information on on sports bras. Uh, we give a whole host of stuff around how people can embed physical activity into their lives in a way that works for them. And at Bravissimo, we have bravissimo.com. Pop onto the website. Um, you can find out where your nearest store is if you'd like to pop in and see us or all the details that you need to get in touch with our, our team of bra fitters um, based in Leamington Spa and they can help you over the phone, video, yeah, get in touch. We'd love to be able to help. Excellent. All right. Well, look, thank you very much indeed to both of you uh, for chatting. Thanks very much. Thanks for having us. Dr. Maggie Burgess is a tropical disease nurse and lecturer. She's from the St. Francis Leprosy Guild. I started off by asking if I actually got her introduction correct. And you know what? I didn't. She added some more details before we uh, got going. Uh, yes, uh, I'd just like to add that I'm at the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, which is also my alumni, okay. um, which is where I learned about leprosy. And, um, and I've also got a, a master's degree in medical anthropology. And um, to do my ethnographic research, I, I lived in a leprosy colony for three months in Nepal. Oh, really? Medical anthropology. That sounds like a very interesting uh, topic. Possibly, well, We'll park that and I might have to invite you back uh, on another day to kind of <laughs> enlarge on that a little bit more. But for today, the the topic is is leprosy. And uh, now I think kind of everyone has heard of leprosy, but may really not know much about it. So, like, so to start off with, maybe I can just ask, you know, really a simple question. You know, what is it and what are the symptoms and what does it do to you? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to, um, if I may, disagree a bit with you, because I, I lecture to um, professional, medical professionals, and um, and th these are the responses I get. So when I say that I work with people affected by leprosy, they look at me in disbelief and say, isn't leprosy a disease of the past? Isn't leprosy a disease that was highly contagious during biblical and medieval times? Didn't they give people mock funerals and declare them socially dead? And make them wear special clothes and carry a bell and ring ring it and cry out unclean, unclean when anybody approached. 
But the really classic question I even get from medical professionals is, didn't leprosy make your fingers and toes fall off and your nose collapse? So what I want to say today is that the word leprosy today continues to evoke historical images of pathogenic horrors of grossly disabled, disfigured people who are ostracized from society. And what I find astounding is that unfortunately, people who still suffer leprosy today do suffer disfigurement and deformity, but unfortunately they are often ostracized, totally cut off from their families and communities and isolated in remote leprosy colonies in okay. 21st century. So is that because some of those symptoms, some of those things that you described, such as disfigurement, are kind of, that is the case. So, so you know, it's just very difficult to have them around and, uh, you know, see family members go through that. Or is, is, is kind of... Yes, it, it's, it's frightening. Um, you know, disfigured people can be frightening and um, you don't want to be disfigured. And in a lot of the countries that still have leprosy today, they have a lot of traditional beliefs, traditional beliefs they've had for thousands of years. So when somebody like me comes along and say, leprosy is caused by a bacteria, leprosy is curable, the drugs to cure it are available free, they think I'm absolutely crazy. And they tell me, no, I've been cursed by a God for doing bad deeds in my past life. And in a situation like that, which largely exists in Nepal and Hindu countries, um, they believe that the curse is the curse is contagious, just right. like we know that a bacteria disease is contagious, but they believe it's the curse from the gods that's contagious, not the bacteria. All right. I, I was going to ask you, and you kind of somewhat answered it there. Where is uh, leprosy still uh, prevalent in the world? Um, the, the number one highest endemic country is India, and the second highest endemic country is Brazil. And a lot of people think, wow, well, how can that happen? How did it jump, you know, f f across oceans and everything to another continent? Well, that was because of the slave trade. Um, so India is the number one, Brazil number two, and then it's dotted throughout Africa and Southeast Asia, countries like Nepal, Myanmar, down through Asia, Philippines. Those are the countries, yeah. yeah. But it, I mean, leprosy used to exist in Europe and the UK, I think, didn't it? Yes, it did. Um, up until um, probably in the late 1940s, early, early 50s. But leprosy is undoubtedly a disease of poverty. It exists where poverty exists. Um, and I, um, I'll give you an example of that. In a lot of the places I work in Nepal, you could put, put a... 20 feet by 20 foot little thatched hut, dirt floor, no water, um, no access to healthcare or anything. There'll be 14 people living in there and they'll all have a disease. Maybe it could be HIV, it could be tuberculosis, leishmaniasis, um, dysentery, malnutrition. And one or two of those people will have long-term untreated leprosy, which means they can carry a, a heavy bacterial load. So they live in close proximity for a prolonged period of time and they cough and sneeze the bacteria on these other individuals who, whose immune systems are grossly compromised and can't fight the bacteria. Okay. So the, the, the reason that it's not, well, not at all in the UK or, or Europe now, is, is that because our, we've got higher standards of, of living now or, you know, you, you said it was existed in the 1950s, you know, what, how come it doesn't exist here now? <laughs> 
for a variety of reasons. Um, leprosy, as I've mentioned, is caused by a bacteria, which is one of the most interesting bacterias. Mike, it was the first bacteria to be discovered as the cause of an infectious disease. It was discovered in 1873. It is the slowest growing bacteria known to mankind. It replicates every 12 to 15 days, whereas falciparum malaria that you get in sub-Saharan Africa, when it's in full cycle in your body, can replicate 35,000 times an hour. Okay, that's quite a big difference. That's quite a big difference. So it, it is hard to get to, to contact, contract leprosy. <laughs> Excuse me for a second. Imagine, so you've got a bacteria that replicates once every 12 to 15 days, okay? And so for bacteria to stay alive, you know, the more there are of them in your body, the more they're winning, okay? So if your immune system kills that first bacteria that gets in there, another one's got to get in there to even get a foothold. You see, I mean, it has a, mm -hmm. um, it has a transmission period of two to five years, two to five years, and as long as 30 years. Okay. So, so if you're healthy, so, so, then your immune yep. system is kind of up and running, the chances of getting infected are pretty tiny. Are pretty tiny. And we have also discovered that 95% of the human population has a genetic and natural immunity to the presence of M. lepri, which is the bacteria. Okay. All right. I was going to ask if there was a genetic element to it, and some people are more susceptible. Um, so absolutely, yes. Very few people uh, are kind of susceptible to it anyway. Yes, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And, and something else that goes along with that that that's really upset me over the years, lots of ways that leprosy people have been treated. As I said, this bacteria was discovered in 1873. And if you can imagine, in 1906 in Japan, they had a problem with leprosy-affected people, which caused them huge embarrassment. So they took those people up to high-altitude colonies. And at the same time, they passed a law to say that if you had leprosy and you wanted to get married, both the man and the woman had to submit to sterilization or they could, it was not legal for them to get married. And if you were a healthy woman, healthy man, married, and you were say eight months pregnant, diagnosed with leprosy, in Japan, they aborted your baby. Leprosy has never ever been a hereditary disease. It's a disease caused by a bacteria. And right. leprosy, and, and as I've told you, it's not highly contagious, but leprosy effective people have suffered hugely over the years unnecessarily because of so many misconceptions about the disease. Right, okay. So misconceptions is, is a problem um, for sure. Let's move on to the cure because you, you said earlier that, that there there is a cure. Um, what is the it's cure? one of the main reasons I got involved in leprosy. I like result-oriented medicine. Um, so here you were with an age-old disease, one of the oldest diseases known to mankind. And when I was taught leprosy, I was taught that leprosy is curable and the drugs are available free. So, of course, I said to myself, my goodness, what is going on here? Why are these people suffering this disease? Uh, and, and as you, you've already remarked on, it's largely due to huge misunderstandings, uh, incorrect knowledge about the disease. The drugs are a combination of three antibiotics. One is called dapsone, clofastinine, and rifampicin. 
And those drugs are made by the Novartis Foundation, a Swiss company. And they have said that they will give the drugs for free as long as leprosy exists. So there, there have, since the, and, and they became, a, well, they became available, when I say available, 1985, but when you're in a poor country like Nepal that has a very poor inf health infrastructure, it wasn't until maybe 1995, those drugs started becoming available in, in Nepal. Um, so it, it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, so um, this, you, so, well, two, two things that surprised me, the, the cure is relatively recent. Mm -hmm. And um, also, we, we, we've got a pharmaceutical company giving away their stuff for free. I haven't heard of that before, ever. I know. I know. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, they have been supported in the past by um, the Sasakawa Foundation, which is a hugely rich uh, foundation in Japan. Um, and, and the founders of, of, of that foundation have dedicated their lives to eliminating leprosy. So they help. Um, they you know, help facilitate the drugs being delivered and things like that. And it's monitored so, through the World Health Organization. All right, so it's relatively simple, is it? You know, you pop a few pills and, and you're done, or is it a bit more involved? Well, exactly. That's what I said when I first learned this. My goodness, you know, so what's the problem? Why are people suffering the disease? <laughs> <laughs> well, one, you can, as I said, it, um, it can have a transmission period of two to five years. So you could be exposed to leprosy year one, and never get a sign or symptom of it for five years. So it's slowly just sitting there incubating in your body. And as I said, it replicates every 12 to 15 days. So the signs and symptoms are very, very slow to evolve. And the most common sign and symptom is if you have dark skin, you get a hypopigmented skin patch, usually on your, your arms, your chest, your face, and it becomes um, anesthetic to touch. Okay, what does that mean? That means that they lose their feeling. There's no feeling okay. in it. So it doesn't itch, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't anything. So if you're a very, very poor farmer in a remote area of Nepal or India, you spend your whole day eking out an existence, just getting enough food on the table for your family, finding enough water. You know, you, you have no concern whatsoever that you've got a little light patch on your skin that doesn't bother you at all. So there, you don't seek medical attention. In the meantime, um, over a period of years, you will get more skin patches. They could be on your back, on your chest. I mean, they don't bother you at all. But what's then what's happening at the same time is this is the only bacteria known to mankind that attacks your peripheral nerves. And your peripheral nerves control sensation to touch, pain, cold, fire, um, it also controls how your muscles contract. So the strength of, of your hand when you grasp something, pick it up, whatever, and also controls what was called the autonomic system of, you know, we all, all day long, we all secrete a little bit of oil on our skin mm -hmm. that keeps our skin supple and prevents it from breaking. And our skin is the, our first line of defense. You know, it's our first immune thing. It keeps us all closed up tight not letting yep. anything in. So as soon as it starts to crack and everything, then you start getting in infections. So what happens to these people is they, like I say, they're so busy just eking out an existence, trying to exist, that um, they don't really notice that they've lost feeling in their hands. So they, 
they cut their hands or damage it when they're you know doing some of their farm work and it gets infected and they don't have access to medical care they don't have money and they just continue on with their life and it, eventually it gets gangrenous and and it dies and what happens medically is that whatever's left of your fingers or your toes or everything is reabsorbed by your body what's ever left healthy so so, so um i i think well, so, so that that's the method where the that you get these disfigurations and um that yes, everybody that, thinks about leprosy that, okay yeah mike i could be sitting here with my hand in a fire and literally in a campfire talking to you not a clue no feeling whatsoever okay so i would just continue my life yeah and the other wow. thing it does to you affecting your peripheral nerve it gives you a condition called lagothalamus which means mike you cannot close your eyes <coughs> excuse me when you can't close your eyes you are open to infection things getting in your eyes your eyes dry out you get corneal scarring and various other things that have very long names we won't say and you go blind so now you can't feel anything and now you can't see anything goodness all right can the can the cure which has only been around you know 30 years or so uh, mm -hmm. Can it be useful at any point of this process? So when you first, uh, you know, from when you first see patches of uh, light coloured skin to when, you know, you're, you're kind of losing parts of fingers and toes and stuff. Can, can you take the medicine at any point? Yes. Yes. Uh, if you are uh, um, diagnosed positively for leprosy, there are two types of leprosy. You you must get on the medicine right away for the for posibacillary leprosy you take the drugs for six months and you must take the drugs for the whole six months if you have multibacillary leprosy you have to take the drugs for a full year okay what you said the two different types of leprosy we haven't discussed that yet tell us quickly what they are okay uh posibacillary leprosy occurs in patients who have a, a very good immune response to the existence of the leprosy bacteria so you'll have far fewer symptoms, far fewer skin patches, and far fewer peripheral nerves are involved. Multibacillary leprosy, very interesting. We do not know why. Leprosy remains a complex, mysterious disease that has yet to yield up many of her secrets. And Mike, we cannot grow the bacteria in the lab. Even though we discovered it in 1873, we cannot grow it in the lab today. So there's a lot we don't know about leprosy. But what we do know with multibacillary leprosy is the patient's immune response is totally ineffective. So that means the bacteria just grows continuously freely. Okay. So you so eventually- it's a much more virulent form. Well, it's still the same time element. You see, it still only replicates every 12 to 15 days. Oh, but okay. if you have no immune response to it, it just happily continues to replicate. But whereas you have a good, what's called a cell-mediated immune response to it, it kills the bacteria. Right. Uh, you know, I, I've always, I, I get very passionate and, and partially angry and whatever. These people never had a chance. Imagine, you know, you've got one little skin patch and in Nepal, this was a criminal offense up till about 1986. 
I mean, you were in, literally incarcerated in this lousy leprosy colony and pretty well left there to rot. They fed you and that was about it. So you had no chance at life. So I love nothing better than to cure people if they need rehabilitation, rehabilitative surgery, tendon transfers, fix their eyes, drop foot, all that sort of stuff, and then teach them a skill, educate them. And um, we have, through the St. Leprosy, uh, Fra uh, Francis Leprosy Guild, we have done things like the children of leprosy affected people. We've sent them to nursing school, to be lab technicians, to work in the you know tourist trade, if that's a big deal in their country. And they are the stars of our program because they go back and tell people, I was born in a leprosy colony, you know? I'm a nurse mm -hmm. now. I make a lot of money. I'm married to, you know, normal men. I have normal kids. I lead a normal life. You know, that's, you've got to give hope, hope and reality together to these people. Well, one thing which actually maybe I should have asked at the, the start is just how many people kind of have leprosy? How many people does this affect? Well, now, now that is also a very interesting question. It is estimated that there are over 4 million undiagnosed cases worldwide, okay? Um, but the, uh, the WHO is printing nowadays that, that probably 200,000 new cases are being found every year. Right. Okay. So uh, that, that number is just going to go up and up then, isn't it? The number of people that have it or, you know, people are going to die each year, but maybe less than well, 200,000. Uh, well, yes, and and it, it's also <laughs> it's also a very interesting thing. There's a huge amount of politics involved in this, and whatever. Um, so WHO sets targets, and uh, so they set a target to eliminate. And and Mike, I think it's really important to understand: eliminate and eradicate are two totally different things. Okay. And I will ask explain you. That. I wouldn't have. Yeah. I wouldn't have said. I wouldn't have guessed that. Carry on. No. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, Mike, how many diseases has mankind eradicated? Um, one. Excellent. Well done. What is it? And, that, and that's um, through vaccination, and it's um, oh, the one that gives you horrible pustules all over your face. What, Smallpox, yeah. Smallpox, yes. Smallpox, yes. Excellent, Mike. Good for you. Very, very few people get that answer right. So there's the difference, okay? You cannot eradicate a disease unless you have a vaccination, a vaccine for it, okay? So when we talk about eliminating leprosy, the definition of that is to reduce the prevalence, which is new number of patients at a certain time, to one patient per 10,000 of the population. And because of the slow growing bacteria, they feel that transmission Will disappear because there's nobody for the disease to transmit to. You see, you've reduced that dramatically, and that the disease will disappear. A vaccine is being worked on, but there is not vaccine. So, WHO sets targets to eliminate. And can you imagine if you're a country that has high tourism, like India, for example, but everybody knows you have leprosy. So, you want to get to WHO's target to say that your country has eliminated leprosy. And that was done between 2005 to 2012. I think 100, over 121 countries said that they had eliminated leprosy. And once that happened, everybody took their eye off the ball. 
the political will disappeared, the money disappeared, the research disappeared, medical professionals went and looked after HIV, TB, leishmaniasis, other diseases. And guess what happened? For 10 years, the numbers stagnated. No more, no less, because nobody did anything. And then WHO woke up to it and realized that, you know, we were missing out here. So we started all over again on our elimination campaigns. And that's where we are today. We spoke about uh, lots of lots of points. If people are listening and, and two things, I guess if they want to find out more, uh, maybe they want to get involved. They'd like to volunteer to help or perhaps they'd even like to de- donate some money to the cause. Yes. Um, what should they do? Helpful. Uh, Well, I I think one of the first things is to go to the St. Francis Leprosy Guild website. Uh, We have a superb website, highly informative, very easy to donate, ways to get involved. Excellent. All right. And so that you you just uh, just search for um, St. Francis Leprosy and you'll find it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'd like to say too, we are the only, we're a very interesting organization. We're 128 years old. Mm-hmm. We were founded by a very crazy British nurse called Kate Marston, who decided to, 128 years ago, uh, look for leprosy affected people in Siberia. And she went with Queen Victoria's blessing, and um, the Tsarina of Russia took her under her arm and, you know, and gave her all the help she could. So, and when she came back to the UK, she converted to Catholicism, I think partially because Father Damien, who is the famous um, Jesuit priest who worked in, in Molokai in Hawaii, uh, was her hero. Um, and so we are the only Catholic um, leprosy organization in, in the UK. And so, I, I mean, we're based on basic Christian values. I mean, who, who, who couldn't not want to help somebody affected with leprosy and and everything we do, we, we work with a lot of nuns, a lot of uh, priests in various various countries around the world, like Sri Lanka. You can read about them or on the website. But everything we do is with compassion and always to ensure people's dignity and humanity, even though they've got one of the oldest, most discriminated diseases in the world. All right, but uh, sounds like a, a very uh, worthwhile. Uh, thing to do and cause. So, Dr. Maggie Burgess, uh, thank you very much indeed for chatting. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show, and they were Leanne Cahill of Bravissimo, Sarah Taylor of Think Active, uh, that's a charity, and Dr. Maggie Burgess from the St. Francis Leprosy Guild, uh, which I imagine is also a charity. And of course, a big thank you to you for listening and have a healthy week until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week until next week.